0: brothers and sisters, if you would go with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, we'll pick up in verse 12, John chapter 19, picking up in verse 12, we'll read through verse 16. Hear the word of the living God. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So Father, what contempt Your Son was treated with. And yet we know that this is our human condition, that we reject Your King. But yet Your King has come to our world that we have messed up with our sins. And He has ransomed and redeemed a people. And so we thank You for Your Son. Help us, Holy Spirit, to receive the Word, to believe it, to go from this place in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've made our way to the end of this final trial of Christ before Pilate and before the Jews, just before He is delivered over to them to be crucified. And this section that we are looking at today Sort of concludes many weeks uh, going back to the beginning of John 18 where we have studied Jesus being under trial. And so to refresh our memories, this started back at the beginning of John chapter 18. If you remember, Judas Iscariot shows up in a garden where Jesus frequently meets with his disciples, and he shows up with a band of soldiers who are sent from the chief priests, and Judas betrays Jesus into their hands. And Jesus is arrested and taken to Annas. And then Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas, who accuses Jesus of blasphemy deserving of death. And so he sends Jesus to Pilate. And after briefly being sent to Herod, Jesus ends up back in Pilate's praetorium early on Friday morning, where he and Jesus go back and forth between a private conversation and then publicly before this mob of Jews who are furious and demand that Jesus be crucified. And so picking up here in chapter 19, verse 12, we get the last interaction between Pilate and the Jews, and we see ultimately the final rejection of Jesus Christ, which leads to His being crucified. And that's what I want to focus on in this message, the world's rejection of its King the world's rejection of its King. In this last interaction between Pilate and the Jews in these four verses, we see the world's climax, the climax of the world's utter rejection of Jesus Christ as its King. And I'm using the phrase the world to describe both Jew and Gentile, all peoples. And I use the phrase this way because John uses the phrase that way in his Gospel and so he says in John 1.10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And so why, why is this important to remember? Well, I think it's important for every generation of the church, but as, anytime the church is in a specific historical moment, we need to take a step back and see the backdrop with which the world has generally che- treated Jesus Christ. Because if we don't do that, we run the risk of thinking that we are somehow peculiar. Right? And when we look out into our culture and we see the sin and we see the destruction and we see the opposition of Jesus Christ, we need to be able to land that theologically and say this is the world's story. The rejection of its king. And so while the Jews and Rome are clearly distinguished Here and in the rest of the New Testament, and I will make that uh, distinction as well, ultimately we will see that they collapse into one people. They collapse into one, the world, and they become the same as they reject Jesus Christ as their King. So I want to walk us through these four verses and as we do that, reach into other passages of Scripture to build out this persistent biblical thing of the world's rejection of the Lord and show how the world's history of rejecting God as its King climaxes right here in Jesus' final trial before Pilate in John chapter 19. On Friday, on Good Friday, before His crucifixion, as both the Jews and the Gentiles pledged their allegiance not to Yahweh, but to Caesar, and deliver Jesus over to be crucified. As I began to prepare for this sermon and a couple of other sermons I'll be preaching in John, I thought it would be good just to go back to John chapter 1 and just read through the Gospel again. And as I did that, one of the things that was striking to me is this theme of rejection that runs through the Gospel. John highlights the fact that God sent His Messiah the true life and light of the world into the world to save the world. Yet, the world rejects this light. And the people of the world, both Jew and Gentile, reject Him and choose to love their sin and remain in their sin. And I want to build this out a little bit just so that you get this idea. John 3.19 uh, John And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And again, our assessment of this world, our assessment of our current cultural moment must have that as its backdrop. That the people of this world love their sin more than God. And they reject Him. And not only do they reject Him and choose their sin, they reject Him to the point of trying to kill Him. Listen to just a few of these passages so that you can get a feel for this. John 5.18 This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father. Making Himself equal with God. John 5.39-43 You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. John 7.7 The world cannot hate you, but it hates Me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John 8.39-40 Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill Me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And in this rejection, it comes in spite of all the signs and all the good and all the miracles that Jesus did so that people would not reject Him, but that they would believe in Him. This is why John records them for us by writing His Gospel. He says in His purpose statement in John 20, 30-31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him you may have eternal life." So the same author who has witnessed these signs, witnessed these miracles and recorded them so that we would believe, is the same Apostle who highlights the fact that the world does not believe, and in spite of the miracles, chooses to reject Christ in love for their sin. And this landed on me very heavily as I was reading the most startling example is in John 12, 37, after Jesus performs perhaps the most amazing miracle ever recorded in human history, the raising of Lazarus from the dead and demonstrating that He has authority over all, even over death. And yet, John tells us in 12.37 that though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. It's amazing. I mean, as I was reading this, it was almost difficult to comprehend and as I was reading through John's Gospel again, I found myself just utterly frustrated with the Jews over their unbelief. And listen, I have all my Reformed theological categories in a row. I understand total depravity. I understand uh, sin. I understand blindness and, and the need for regeneration and all these things, but I still just found myself frustrated. How could they see the Messiah do these signs? They could touch him. They could handle him. They looked at him doing good. And yet they still rejected him. It's astonishing. And Jesus himself, Mark tells us, was astonished at unbelief. It says Jesus went home, went to his hometown, and it says that they took offense and he marveled at their unbelief. Jesus marveled at the unbelief of His own people. And listen to how John describes the Jews' response to Jesus after He raises Lazarus from the dead. It's, it's sinister. John twelve nine to 11 when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of Him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Jesus performs this incredible miracle showing I have life in My name. Whoever looks on Me will not taste the second death. He will be raised from the dead. Believe in Me. Look to Me and have eternal life. And He proves this through, through raising Lazarus from the dead so that they would believe so that He could give them eternal life. And they reject Him. Think about this. Jesus waits two more days after He hears Lazarus is dead. Have you ever pondered that? He he waits four days. He lets Lazarus lay dead for four days before raising Him from the dead. Why? So that the Jews would believe. So that all room for, for some sort of Um, oh, this is a coincidence. This really wasn't what it really was. It's all gone. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus raises him up. Yet, what is their response? Not only do they want to kill Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus who was raised from the dead. Because some people were so astonished at the miracle that they were believing in Jesus and going after Him in some type of way. The Jews' vitriol of Jesus is so intense that they actually plot to put Lazarus to death. This unbelief is astonishing, and I have to remind myself that this is our story as humans born into Adam, isn't it? Unbelief in rejection of Jesus Christ. And it is this story that Jesus enters into to save us. It's astonishing. And guys, this type of unbelief really is the ultimate expression of irrationality. You know, maybe um, y- you've heard people say this. We all have. I'm not religious. I, I just fall back on reason. You heard this? I- I'm a rational person. I like, to, I like to believe what I can see. I use logic. I use rationality. All these things. Guys, rejecting Jesus is the ultimate form of irrationality. You are are looking at the truth come down in human form. Fully God, fully man, never did anything wrong, never sinned, always spoke the truth, always did the truth. And to reject Him is to reject reason. To reject Him is to be irrational. And this leads to destruction. And for readers who are familiar with our Old Testament, This rejection is disheartening, but it's not surprising, is it? This is Israel's history by and large. Yahweh in His sovereign purpose of election chooses Israel out of all the nations to redeem and to love. And He gives them His law written on tablets of stone and He makes a covenant with them and He gives them land because of His love and His mercy. He says to them in Exodus 6-7, I will take you to be My people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." He gave them His priesthood. He gave them His Levitical system, His sacrificial system so that their sins could have atonement. So that a holy God could dwell with an unholy people. He gave them the tabernacle and the temple to dwell with them in a way that He did not dwell with any other nation. And He promised them that if they, if they would keep this covenant, then things would go well with them. And He would keep them in the land and He would give them offspring and, and blessing and they would be a blessing to all the world. Yet, they do not keep the covenant, but reject this covenant. Although He promises them that He would raise up for them a prophet like Moses who would reveal Yahweh to them who would crush the head of the serpent, who would deliver him from their enemies. And we see later that he promises David a king who would sit on Judah's throne forever and reign. And God did all this. He fulfilled all these promises. He brought forth its king. He brought forth Israel's deliverer, but Israel rejects its king despite all these great promises and despite all of the Lord's mercy and grace, in rejecting Jesus Christ, Israel rejects the Lord as its King. Remember in the wilderness when God delivers the children of Israel from the the Red Sea and He brings them into the wilderness and it says that they're craving for meat and it says that they grumble against Moses and Aaron, but Moses says to them, Your grumbling is not against us, it's against the Lord. And then fast forward more uh, more than 2,000 years, most most likely, or, or 1,800 years or so, to the events of John 6, where the Jews find themselves yet again in the wilderness, and Jesus is going to feed them with loaves of bread and with fish, and He feeds this Massive multitude, yet He teaches them ultimately that I'm the true bread that you need. I'm the manna that has come down from heaven from God. And that everyone who believes in Me shall have eternal life. Eat from Me. But listen to how John describes the Jews' response to Jesus. John 6.41 So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So from Moses to Jesus, the Jews have been grumbling about God's provisions for them. It's amazing. And they are quick to forsake Him for another. You Think about the book of Judges. What's the pattern that keeps happening? Uh, The children of Israel apostatize and God gives them over to judgment and then they cry out to the Lord the Lord raises up a judge, a deliverer, frees them from under the oppression. They have peace for a while, and then what happens? They apostatize again. And they go after idols again. And God gives them over in judgment again. And the same thing keeps happening over and over and over. Or you remember First Samuel 8 when Israel demands to have a king like all the other nations of the earth. They weren't wrong for wanting a king. They just wanted a king that was unlike the one God wanted to give them. They wanted a king like the nations had. A king. A tall, strong, handsome king. And remember what the Lord says to Samuel. He says, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they've rejected Me from being king over them. Israel's history is largely a history of rebellion against Yahweh. It's a history of idolatry and judgment and exile and ultimately a history of rejecting the Lord's lordship. And as I said earlier, this rejection culminates here in John 19 and especially in these four verses as the Jews along with Rome reject their true King, Jesus Christ, and demand that He be crucified. So let's jump into this text. Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone makes him, who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is the ultimate form of selling out. The Jews go as low as they can go here because if anyone was an insubordinate and disloyal people to Caesar, it was the Jews. They were an extremely difficult people to handle. Uh, D.A. Carson commenting on this verse says that it is saturated with irony. In order to execute Jesus, the Jewish authorities make themselves out to be more loyal subjects of Caesar than the hated Roman official Pilate is. And he says that their slavery is not only to sin, but to a political thraldom they earlier denounced. Remember back in John 8 when the Jews say to Jesus, we're not slaves to anyone. Abraham is our father. We've we've never been slaves to anyone. They reject Caesar's lordship over them. Uh, They were insubordinate because they believed God had given them the land. And so to be subject to Caesar was to be inconsistent with all the Old Testament promises of freedom and deliverance. And, And they would say, Caesar isn't king. Yahweh is king. Yet here they readily cast off their allegiance to Yahweh and pledge allegiance to Caesar in order to get Jesus crucified. Talk about pragmatism! Look, Pilate, this man who has made himself out—he's uh, he, made himself out to be a king. You can't let him go. Anyone who makes himself a king, Pilate, is not a friend of Caesar. You know this, Pilate. And what they are doing is they are applying political pressure to Pilate. And I won't get into the history of all of this, but Pilate has already been in some difficult political waters with Tiberius Caesar because of the Jews. And there are close eyes on Pilate at this point. And the worst charge that you could be charged with as a Roman was the charge of treason. Uh, Craig Keener, a scholar on John, says that treason was considered a worse crime than murdering one's own father. And to commit treason was essentially to commit suicide. And so the Jews put Pilate between a rock and a hard place. Crucify a man who he believes to be innocent and give the Jews an upper political hand in an already difficult political situation or let a man who is claimed to be a king Go free, knowing that word will get back to Caesar who's already had problems with Pilate and who was already paranoid about being overthrown. It's a lose-lose from a political standpoint for Pilate. And he says this in Matthew 27 What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What do you want me to do with Him? And Pilate, like all of us, has a choice to make. This narrative gives us a great illustration for the choice that we all must make today and every day. What will you do with Jesus Christ? It's a question that every person on this planet has to answer. What will you do with God's Deliverer? What will you do with King Jesus? bow the knee to King Jesus and suffer whatever worldly consequences may come? Or, for the sake of salvaging our status here in the world, align ourselves with the world and find ourselves opposing King Jesus. This is the Gospel call. Renounce everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. No matter what that might mean. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. Matthew 6:25 For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is no neutral position toward Jesus Christ. And for believers, this is applicable to us as well. What desires? What wants? What dreams? What what do we have in our hearts? That may become subordinate or insubordinate and fight Jesus for the throne of our hearts? Uh, What do we have in us existing that, if challenged, if threatened, like Pilate's political power was challenged and threatened, might cause us to sell Jesus out unjustly? It's a question we should ponder. And, And I know that that gets sensational really quickly. It's not my desire to have, you know, like. You remember the youth youth rallies a few years ago, you'd go to, and somebody would be up a, with a microphone, give it all for Jesus, and all the kids would yell and scream and run around. It's not what I want to do. But we should all ask ourselves this is there anything that, if threatened, is so important to us that if threatened, we might waver. We might pledge our allegiance to that thing instead of our king. Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. So after Pilate hears these words, the words about Jesus claiming to be a king, and therefore that Pilate would be opposing Caesar if he allows a professing king to go free, and because of all the political pressure, he brings Jesus out before the Jews publicly. And There's some ambiguity here in this verse because depending on the verb, how you translate the verb sat, this verse could be understood as Pilate sitting on the judgment seat, but it's ambiguous. It could also be understood as Jesus sitting on the judgment seat. And I agree with Edward Clink, who thinks that John may have written the verse this way on purpose to show that there are competing realities here for the judgment seat. The, the authority of Jesus and the authority of Pilate. So from a historical perspective, yes, Pilate sat on the judgment seat. This is His throne. Yet, Jesus, we know, is the true judge. He is the one who has true authority. And readers of the Gospel know this. Remember back in John 5.25 when Jesus says, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And he says in verse 27, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So Jesus Christ is saying, there's going to be a day when I will speak and all the dead who have ever lived will rise up and I will judge them whether they are worthy to enter My kingdom or not. I have that judgment. That's My call. And we see this tension between Jesus and Pilate here in this narrative. But Jesus actually executes a divine judgment as He speaks with Pilate. Look back at verse 10 very quickly. So Pilate said to Him, You will not speak to Me? Listen to this. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus here with blood running down His face, bruises on His eyes, beaten, battered from the flogging, looks at Pilate and in verse 11 says, you would have no authority over Me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, He who delivered Me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus shows Pilate who is in charge here. while He is being judged, He proclaims a divine judgment. And we've seen this from the very beginning going back all the way to chapter 18. No one has any authority whatsoever over Jesus. He is fully free. He has willfully submitted Himself to the will of the Father. And the Father sovereignly ordained every single moment of this whole narrative, this whole account, according to His will, and His divine plan to redeem humanity. Jesus is saying, yes, Pilate, you do have authority, and you're wrong. You're about to unjustly crucify a king who has not been condemned by any crime. You're wrong for that. That is sin. But the Jews who have delivered Me over to you, they have the greater sin. And He executes a divine judgment that will see its full Climax in 70 A.D. Jesus is fully in charge even as He sits on this in front of this judgment seat bleeding. Do you ever struggle seeing how God could be sovereign over evil events? This is the most evil event in human history and Jesus is in charge the entire time. Pilate thinks he has authority over Jesus here. But what he doesn't realize is that every moment of his life, his training, all the, all the backdoor, behind the scenes, political conversations, the throwing people under the bus, the getting himself above others in the political sphere, all of this evil that Pilate has probably committed to get here in this situation, all, all the good Pilate has done, the fact that he was born in this time, in this Uh, place in Judea in front of these Jews on this Friday, on this Sabbath, before this Sabbath, on this Passover week, has all been ordained with exact precision according to the plan of God. It's amazing. Jesus has the authority here. Yet, the the Jews have the greater sin because they have the law. Pilate doesn't. The Jews have the law. It's been entrusted to them. It's it's their Messiah. They should have seen Him and recognized Him and worshipped Him and bowed down to Him. But they reject Him to the point of crucifying Him. And Jesus says that sin is greater. And so guys, I think we need to stop saying that all sin is the same. All sin is not the same. Yes, all sin warrants judgment, and and God will not look overlook any sin. That is true. Pilate can't claim ignorance and therefore be innocent, but what is far worse is to know God's will, to have access to his will, and to blatantly reject it, and to choose sin instead, to have his revelation and to be in a location, in a setting where God's will is readily available. And accessible, you know. That's why so many people, I think, rightly fear God's judgment on what is called the Christian West. I mean, think about the access to the Bible that we have, brothers and sisters, and I'm thankful for that. But but we have uh, the King James and the New King James, and if you don't care for that, you can get the ESV and the NASB, and, the, and the, if you like something easier, you can get the NLT. In the NIV, in all of these, and by and large, they all communicate God's will. We can hear Him speaking in all these versions and we have it on our phones and we have it on our radios and we have podcasts where teachers are teaching biblical doctrine. And we have seminary courses giving classes for free almost. And we have conferences for everything you could want and books and all of these things. And I'm thankful for it all, but have we stewarded the much that God has given us? It's going to be worse in judgment for people who have heard the Gospel message, heard the prophetic witness of the church, and rejected it, and lived in total rebellion to God despite knowing His will, than it will be for those in unreached places who have never heard. They will receive due punishment for their sins they will be held accountable for their rejection of God. But it will be far worse for those who have the revelation of Christ and reject it. They will be charged with the greater sin. Jesus says in Luke 8.18, Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. You know. May, and I'm speaking to myself, maybe we should pause before we just listen to a podcast and then just mindlessly hit play on the next one. I count it a great privilege to be in a church where the where the word is proclaimed accurately and rightly every week we should We should be thankful for that, we should want that and desire that and demand that, but we should not take it for granted, as if somehow we are just privileged to get good sermons week after week after week, that should humble us, brothers and sisters. What are we doing with the Word of God? Are we being hearers only or are we also doing the Word? Verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And He said to the Jews, Behold Your King. So Thursday evening was the Passover proper. It was the day that all the Jews had to eat the Passover meal. And then following that was the festival of unleavened bread or also called the feast of the Passover or the Passover feast. It was a week-long celebration where there would be many sacrifices and many meals and these things. And so Jesus' trial is taking place on Friday, which is the day the Jews prepared for the Sabbath day. And on this particular Friday, they were preparing not only for the Sabbath, but the whole uh, Passover week. And so it was a special Friday and it would have been a special Sabbath day. And we see here that Jesus is being treated theologically as a Passover lamb. And we're going to get into that more deeply in a couple of weeks, so I won't say much about it here. But that's sort of the backdrop of the time. And Pilate says to the Jews, Behold your king. This is saturated with irony because whatever Pilate's motive is here, he says the truth, doesn't he? He is their king. He is their king. Pilate's response, as we've seen in this narrative, we saw this last week, are uh, his responses are very complex. There are many layers to Pilate here. We could do a whole series of teaching on Pilate. And he says, behold your king. So he could be flexing his muscles here. You know, and saying to the Jews and taunting them, saying something like, you rebellious and stubborn people, you would choose this guy to be your king, wouldn't you? This guy that I just beat to a a pulp. This guy that I don't see any threat in. The guy that won't even speak to me and defend himself. You would choose this to be your king, wouldn't you? He could be doing that. Or... He could be because of his many exchanges with Jesus and his wife's dream and all of these things and the fact that Jesus has claimed to be a king and He is the Son of God. Pilate could be elevating Jesus and speaking highly about Him in some sort of way. Either way, Pilate has caved to the political pressure of the Jews and against his own wishes, he is going to deliver Jesus to be crucified. All the while, our Savior, meek and lowly, has humbly submitted Himself to the Father's will. And in fulfillment of Isaiah 43.7, like a sheep that goes before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. And Jesus remains silent because He knows that this is His hour. He knows that this is why He came. Despite Pilate's unjust ruling, despite the Jews' unjust condemnation, Jesus knows this is why I came to this world. This is My hour. And the Jews' long-awaited King is here before them. Look at what happens. Verse 15. They cried out, Away with Him! Away with Him! With him, crucify him. Just let that land on you for a moment. And Pilate says to them, "Shall I crucify your king?" With "king" being the focused. Really, are you demanding that I crucify your king? John says this in chapter one, verse eleven. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive Him. And the Jews respond and bring their history-long rejection of God to a full climax with this statement. We have no king but Caesar. Think about that with the backdrop of everything you know about the Old Testament. We have no king but Caesar. Not Yahweh. Caesar. Just as their fathers pledged allegiance to golden calves, to the Asherim, and to the Baals, they pledged their allegiance to another king, another nation, and forsake their God. And they fully and finally reject their messianic hope and bring upon themselves the fullness of the curse of Deuteronomy 28. And this pronouncement of allegiance to Caesar is the last phrase that we get in this trial. And it just sort of ends abruptly. And again, we see the irony here because John is almost certainly writing after 70 A.D. And so readers, when his original readers would have read this, they, have, they would have immediately made the connection. You mean the same nation that the Jews pledged their allegiance to in denial of their king? was the same nation that destroyed their city and burned their temple? Yes. The same nation they tried to rebel against? Forty years later? Yes. God judges Israel for its rebellion in 70 A.D. through the Roman destruction of the temple. So as I close, brothers and sisters, let's look at the last verse. Verse 16 so He delivered Him over to them to be crucified." Again, there's ambiguity here. Pilate hands Jesus over to them. To who? Well, historically, it would have been the Roman soldiers that He hands them over to to carry out the crucifixion. But with the entire Gospel as a backdrop, it seems that although the Roman soldiers carry out the deed, Pilate Pilate is handing Jesus over to the Jews However, as I argued in the beginning, the line that divides the Jews and the Gentiles disappears. And this people, as we read in God's providence this morning from Acts 4, where where the the apostles land Psalm 2 and, and think that it's being fulfilled as the Jews and the Gentiles rouse themselves together in the city of Jerusalem against God and against His anointed and oppose Him and crucify Him. This is the fulfillment of that. Psalm 2 coming to its full climax. That the people of this world reject Yahweh and His Messiah. Albeit for different reasons. And they pledge their allegiance to the world. I think Klink again captures this nicely. He says, by choosing Caesar over Jesus, the Jews declare themselves to be Roman, or, as the gospel introduced, those who oppose and deny God to be members of the world. The intimate connection between Jerusalem and Rome creates a powerful image in the light of this anonymity. So he's saying they're both condemning Jesus to death. They're they're one. They're climaxed or they're uh, fallen into one another. And then he says, this verdict has always involved the whole of humanity. From the first Adam to the second Adam. And so we've primarily focused on the Jews because John focuses on them. But guys, this is humanity's story. The rejection of God and rebellion against His Christ. And, And this is what is most glorious about that. That in spite of that rejection, in spite of that rebellion, Jesus comes into our world for our rebellion. For our rejection. This is why He comes. He comes into our situation. Steps into our scenario knowing that we are weak. Knowing that we are rebellious. Knowing that we reject Him. And He comes in love to save us from our sins that by looking upon Him we would believe and have eternal life. And so this text leaves us with a vital question that every one of us must answer. What will we do with Jesus Christ? And so if you're an an uh, unbeliever, you may say, I've been like the Jews my entire life. I have willfully rejected Jesus Christ despite growing up in church, Despite what my parents said, I have rejected Him. Or you may say, well, I'm kind of like Pilate. I'm kind of neutral. I'm neither here nor there. I don't mind Jesus. But I've got my own thing I'm more concerned about. Either way, both of these end up on the wrong side of things. Yet for both of these, Jesus came to die. That you would be saved. That you would have eternal life. And for believers, Jesus has entered into your life and saved you. Redeemed you from your rejection, from your rebellion. And King Jesus sits on His throne and loves you and cares for you. So as you come to this table in just a moment uh, to commemorate His death, let's do it happy and full of joy, knowing that despite all that we are, as human beings in Adam and all our evil and all our iniquity and all of our sin, that He hung there and bled for us. He remained silent for us. That He would redeem us from the curse of sin. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You um, for Your great gift of Your Son. We bless You. We ask that we could more and more love Jesus Christ. That we would more and more see His work for us. That we would trust it. And Lord, help us to go and to preach His name to this world that is rejecting Him. And we ask that many, many, many people would believe in the Gospel and be saved. And that You would get Your glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.